the age of the basins. Amen. Amen. A few weeks ago, my middle daughter and I were having a conversation, and she asked me a challenging question. Dad, what is the worst thing in the world? Now, kids ask their parents questions like this all the time, but it is particularly fraught when your dad is a priest. And I was taken aback because Lizzie's question sent my head spinning. What is the worst thing in the world? But after thinking about it for a minute, I arrived at what seemed to be a comprehensive answer. Lizzie, I said, I think sin might be the worst thing in the world. Sin is our failure to honor the image of God in ourselves and others. It's, it's what separates us from the love of God. And if Christian theology is to be believed, Lizzie, sin is the root cause of most of the things that go wrong in the world. Lizzie looked at me quizzically for a moment. <laughs> and then she said confidently, No, Dad, it's bees. And who am I to argue with her, right? <laughs> First of all, Lizzie gets her way. <laughs> but on a deeper level, Lizzie thinks bees are the worst thing in the world because bees sting. As destructive as sin might be, it has never sent Lizzie screaming from the playground. Now, I tell this story not just to demonstrate how challenging it is to have me as a dad, but because I think it illustrates something essential about the human experience. In general, we are much more focused on our immediate fears and anxieties, those things that can sting us, than we are on the larger threats to our well-being. Indeed, how often do we become so focused on our individual experience of the world that we forget that we are part of a larger story? And this is the dynamic that seems to be at play in that reading we heard from John's Gospel this morning. This passage comes from a section of the Gospel in which Jesus is preparing those closest to him for his death. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he begins, surprisingly. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And you know the way to the place where I am going. Now often when this scene is depicted in movies about the life of Jesus, like King of Kings and The Greatest Story Ever Told, this scene is depicted in such a way that Jesus is speaking to the disciples and they are sitting with rapt attention, hanging on his every word, waiting to utter their assigned line. And while I obviously have no idea what the energy would have been like in that upper room on the night Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, 
I have to imagine that it probably wasn't nearly as placid as the movies seem to indicate. Think about the context. Jesus has indicated that he will be betrayed by someone sitting at that table. He has predicted that Peter, the rock himself, would deny even knowing Jesus. And he has announced that he will be condemned as a criminal, an enemy of the state, and die a brutal death. It's hard to imagine that the disciples would have accepted all that passively. They were probably anxious, fearful, uncertain about what the future held for them. And the text seems to bear this out. Even as Jesus tried to reassure them, telling them not to let their hearts be troubled, it is clear that at least one of the disciples is having trouble keeping quiet. After Jesus promises that the disciples know the way to the place where he is going, Thomas interrupts, blurting out, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And it's hard not to sympathize with Thomas. Thomas has just been told that his Lord and teacher, the one who has called him friend, was about to be taken away from him. Moreover, Thomas can probably connect the dots and realizes that if Jesus is in danger, then he probably is too. Thomas, in other words, is entirely focused on the threat in front of him. He is preoccupied with his immediate fears and anxieties. And in this sense, Thomas speaks for all of us. All of us who deal with that anxiety of unknowing. All of us who worry about those things that can sting us. All of us who have a hard time imagining the future when the present feels so overwhelming. And we might expect Jesus to express impatience or even frustration with his anxious disciples. What do you have to complain about? You're not the one about to be crucified. But instead, Jesus offers these words of profound assurance. I am the way, he says. And this is nothing short of astonishing. In the first place, this cannot have been what the disciples were expecting or hoping to hear. Thomas and the other disciples, they were probably hoping for a road map to guide them on their path through life for at least the next few days. Just stop talking and tell us what to do. They assume that the death of Jesus means that they are going to have to figure things out on their own. But in this moment, this moment where Jesus says, I am the way, our Lord reveals that there is no roadmap. 
And that is profoundly good news because it means that Jesus does not leave us to figure things out on our own. Instead, Jesus offers us a relationship. And by offering us this relationship, Jesus Christ invites us to participate in God's larger story. To recognize that those things that worry us most are of little account in God's eyes. The way of Jesus comprehends and ultimately transcends all of the anxieties and worries that distract us from this fundamental truth. That everything we are and everything we have belongs to God. Now, the second half of Jesus' response to Thomas is often framed primarily as something of a warning. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, you had better get on board this Jesus train unless you want to suffer eternal consequences. But if we consider the rest of Jesus' reply, it seems to be more than a threat. Jesus goes on to say, if you know me, you will know my Father also, and from now on you do know him and have seen him. These aren't threatening words. These are words of profound assurance. Jesus is assuring the disciples that whatever happens to them, God will be with them. Jesus is assuring the disciples that whatever challenges they face in this life, they can trust that they have a future in God. Jesus invites us to focus not on the fears and anxieties that are right in front of us, but to remember that our lives are part of God's larger story. And what's more, there's nothing more we need to do to get to that place. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship initiated by God himself, our relationship with Jesus means that no matter how overwhelming the present may feel, we are equipped for whatever the future holds. The early 1950s were a busy time at the Church of the Heavenly Rest. The congregation had decided to move from its original downtown location to the Alta Vista neighborhood. We had asked one of the world's preeminent architects to design a Gothic cathedral for this little West Texas town. And members of the parish were in the midst of raising the money to make all this possible. It was a time of great excitement, as you can imagine, but it was not, there was also not a small amount of risk. What if the money didn't come through? What if the neighbors objected to the presence of this imposing edifice right next door? In light of these risks, it would have been reasonable, even wise, for the congregation to say, you know what, we are going to focus exclusively on building the church. 
We can take on other projects and ministries when that work is accomplished. Let's focus on the present. But of course, that's not what happened. The cornerstone for this church was laid in 1953. In 1952, we founded St. John's Episcopal School and Thrift House in the same year. It's a little crazy. Each of these endeavors would have been a massive undertaking on their own. The fact that these institutions were founded at the same time, while people were preparing to build this church, is nothing short of astonishing. And yet, this is what heavenly rest, and indeed this is what the Christian life has always been about. When Jesus faced the specter of crucifixion and death, he could have drawn back. But instead, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. On this Missions Sunday, this Sunday when we celebrate the ministries of Thrift House and St. John's Episcopal School and Breakfast on Beach Street and the Heavenly Rest Buoy Angels, on this Mission Sunday, we acknowledge those from this community who have embodied that love. That love with which Jesus loved his disciples to the end. And those who have remembered that they are part of a larger story. We acknowledge those who sacrifice that extra hour of sleep to make sure the hungry are fed on Monday mornings. We acknowledge those who overcome their fears and uncertainties to make their students feel loved and safe. We acknowledge those who sort through piles of clothing donations to make sure their customers have the dignity of choice. And we acknowledge those who sacrifice their free time to make sure that students in this neighborhood who aren't used to being celebrated are rewarded for their academic success. Most of all, we acknowledge those who look past the immediate risks and choose to imagine the future. A future that belongs to God no matter how overwhelming the present may feel.